Welcome to Snack Break. We speak to experts mostly about policy, but also about snacks. The popular image of Russian President Vladimir Putin is a corrupt dictator who exploits an oil-dependent economy with his corrupt oligarch friends. Few consider the Russian economic model a coherent model at all, much less an effective one. But has Putin had a discernible economic strategy for his country beyond fattening himself and his friends? And to what extent can we say it's worked, and for whom? This is Snack Break. I'm Maru Mukherjee, and today we're pleased to have Dr. Chris Miller, Assistant Professor of International History at the Fletcher School of Law and Diplomacy at Tufts University. He recently wrote a book called Putinomics, Money and Power in Resurgent Russia. Chris, thank you so much for being here. Thanks for having me. So, uh, I'll bite. What is Putinomics, and why did you have to write this book? When Americans think about Putin's Russia, as you mentioned, they think about corruption, they think about the oil curse, they think about nepotism, and all those things are present in Russia in a very significant way. But what they don't tell you is how is it that Putin has held on to power for almost two decades now, survived multiple economic crises, uh, and managed to govern the Russian economy in a way that suggests surprising competence in certain spheres. So it seemed to me that Americans' view of Russia's economy was distorted. There was an emphasis on the parts that went wrong, but not, the, not enough emphasis on the parts that worked reasonably well. And my goal here was to show both of those existing together. Well, it's funny because Putin is such an easy guy to dislike. You know, he's just, he, he's kind of a bad guy. And, and is, it tough, is it tough to write a book that says, okay, yeah, he's bad, but he's not insane. Like there's, some, <laughs> there's, there's a strategic mind here in fact, I think at one point you call, he used to say that earlier he had some sensible macroeconomic policies. Well, it's interesting if you listen to the normal U.S. discussion about Russia, you get lots of words like you used, insane, um, a, a new czar trying to recreate the Soviet Union. If, by contrast, you read the reports that the IMF or the World Bank write about Russia's economy, you'll find a very different story, a story of a country that is implementing very sensible macroeconomic policies that's got the right mix of, of policies designed to keep the budget balanced, to uh, deal with um, its, its, its international debt. And so the challenge for Americans, I think, is to put both these stories next to each other, to understand both that a country can be very corrupt, but at the same time, it can have an economic strategy that suits its leadership reasonably well. So how does he prevent you know, if, if you don't have a lot of economic growth, how is he able to prevent the society from rising up or, or wanting to change the leadership? How is he able to do that? I think there are, are two answers to that question. The first is that if you compare where Russia is today, which is stagnant but also stable, to where it was in the 1990s, which is to say uh, unstable but also not growing very rapidly, almost all Russians prefer the current version. And most Russians are old enough to remember the 1990s, and the government uh, never misses an opportunity to remind them about how bad the 1990s were. So there's a very deliberate attempt to compare today versus before Putin, and most Russians believe that today is better. So that's the first answer to the question. But the second answer is that although in aggregate there has been uh, very disappointing economic growth over the past decade, there's been very disappointing growth in incomes over the past decade, for specific groups of Russians, things have worked out rather better. So for example, the Russian government has put a lot of resources into the pension system up until very recently, making sure that pensioners uh, have gotten uh, growing pensions every year, pensions that are paid on time, and 
every Russian over the age of uh, 60 for men, 55 for women, gets a state pension for most Russians. It makes up the majority of their post-retirement income. And so Putin's been very deliberate in making sure this group, which is politically immensely powerful, uh, gets what they need. So certain groups have done quite yeah. well under Putin, even though the aggregate has been much less impressive. So you've, you've seen this as an effective that he has deployed a, an effective macroeconomic strategy, or at least he did, certainly in, in after the uh, uh, 1998 financial crisis and the 2008 financial crisis. What, so what exactly was he able to do, and why was he able to do it over Yeltsin? That's something I still wasn't clear on, because many of the same problems, they both faced uh, corrupt uh, oligarchs who had stolen from the state. They both faced uh, people who weren't paying taxes. Uh, why was Putin able to do it, but Yeltsin was not? Well, although I titled the book Putinomics, in, in fact, it's a story not just about Putin, but the entire Russian elite. Um, because when you look at the people who are in power today, in the Kremlin, and the Duma, the business elites, uh, almost all of them are of an age of people who have lived through a series of very painful financial crises, both in 1991 when the Soviet Union collapsed, in part due to financial difficulties, 1998 again, 2008. And the lesson that the Russian elite in aggregate has drawn, not only Putin himself, but the people around him, is that financial crises are very dangerous, not only in economic terms, but also in political terms. And so if you're someone with power in Russia and your goal is to retain that power, avoiding financial crisis is very high on your list. And so some of the dilemmas that Yeltsin faced in the early 1990s of tax collection with forcing oligarchs to follow the rules that he wrote were problems that were less important or less uh, challenging in the 2000s because more and more people had learned in the Russian elite that financial crises are so dangerous to their own hold on power. Do you think of Yeltsin's experience as uh, that he did had no choice. He was constrained by the fact that he, even no matter what he did to try and reform the economy, he was doomed to failure. Yeltsin was dealt a very, very difficult hand when he came to power, uh, head of independent Russia at the end of 1991. Although he made many mistakes, his team no doubt made many mistakes, it's hard to envision a set of policy choices that would have worked significantly better. Yeah. And, 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 what, and what are the trade-offs that Putin had to make? Um, because to me, if you are trying to rein in oligarchs, you're hurting your, you know, support. Uh, you know, it's not quite the same sort of democratic risk in terms of people, but you don't want to anger those sorts of folks. They also hold significant amounts of power. In some ways, I think the calculation with the oligarchs is slightly different. It's more of an economic calculus. So there's a benefit towards. Uh, putting political pressure on the oligarchs, which is that you can get them to follow your rules. But the cost of doing so is that you also decrease their willingness to invest money in Russia. So if you're an oligarch who's facing a decision, should I keep my money in Russia or in Switzerland or London or France? Oligarchs know that they can make a fair amount of money in Russia under the right political circumstances, but that is always at the whim of the government. Mm -hmm. And so certain oligarchs, to their surprise, have gotten on the wrong side of Putin at various times. Mm -hmm. and They've lost their businesses or even ended up in jail. And so the result of that, from an economic perspective, is lower business investment in Russia and, as a result, lower growth. Do, do they have as much power as people think they do? The oligarchs, probably not. In large part because almost all of them know that uh, with only a couple of potential exceptions, Putin could tomorrow order them to be jailed and stripped of their property. Now, there are risks to Putin of doing that because mm -hmm. there's a tentative balance within the political system between different factions. But at the end of the day, any individual's wealth, any individual's status depends on Putin's decisions. So does that also mean that Putin is not quite as powerful as people think he is? 
Well, certainly it's not the case that he makes every single decision, nor that he can make decisions unimpeded by other interests. Mm-hmm. There are business interests, there are different groups of elites, there's a desire to avoid protests among the population. So he's constrained in certain ways, but there's no doubt that he's more powerful in the Russian political system than, say, the U.S. president is powerful in the U.S. political system. Putin was able to get more people to pay taxes. That was one of the biggest points you make in the book. He also was able to rein in a few of the oligarchs that, of course, opposed him. There was more state control over strategic, as the word you use, there are non-strategic areas of industry and strategic areas of industry, and he, and he was able to uh, retain state control of those strategic areas of industry, What, like, like the oil industry. Um, where does that lead Russia going forward? Are those, the decisions that he made and those trade-offs he made, are those going to hamper I mean, they obviously are hampering at Russian growth, but is that going to have even more major consequences down the line? Well, if you look at the share of Russian of the Russian economy that's currently made up by the of the government, uh, when Putin came to power, it was something around a third of of Russian GDP was produced by the government. Today, by most estimates, it's closer to 70%. So there's a vast expansion of the role of the government in uh, in the Russian economy, and most of this is taking places in sectors where the government is uh, almost certainly not doing a better job than the private sector would. So you mentioned the oil industry. That's a great example of where Russia used to have a large number of privately owned oil companies, which were uh, improving their efficiency, they were cutting costs, they were doing the types of things that you want companies to be doing. Today, it's the exact opposite. There still are a couple of privately owned firms, but the largest one, Rosneft, is uh, run by one of Putin's old KGB colleagues. By almost all accounts, it's run very inefficiently, wasting probably literally billions of dollars a year on various corruption schemes and just general inefficiency. So that certainly imposes both short-term costs, money wasted today, but also long-term costs because Russia's entire oil industry is negatively affected mm-hmm. when a company like that uh, expands so drastically in size, but also runs itself so poorly. And do you see signs of any sort of domestic discontent at this point, of course? I mean, there was that all-female band, the, the, the Pussy Riot, a few several years ago, and that had created some some uh, ripple effects. But uh, there doesn't seem to be uh, any major movements right now. Do you, do you see something different, and how would we know? There's reasonably good data trying to track protest movements, for example, across Russia. Um, And the conclusion of almost all of them is that although there are certainly localized protests against individual governors, uh, and there are occasional protests in some of the big cities against Putin personally, by all accounts, protests are not growing in size, and they're relatively small compared to other countries. You look at the public opinion data about Russian support for Putin or trust in Putin, it's fallen a bit in recent months, but Putin remains more popular among Russians than most leaders do among their populists. And even if you account for the fact that some of that might be influenced by people being afraid to respond honestly to surveys, anecdotal data, as well as the best polling data we have suggests that most Russians are at least satisfied with Putin, if not actively supporting him. So there's very little evidence of growing popular discontent. And they aren't bothered by the fact that he is, I mean, by some estimates, he's worth hundreds of billions of dollars. I mean, nobody really knows. Mm-hmm. And that's another crazy thing. He He's spent most of his life in, if not all, in government service, at least for the last several decades. How did he, how did he become so rich? Does anyone actually know? I mean, and is he looting the Russian economy in the same way that, that the, the others were? 
Well, I think the question of how much money Putin personally has is, in some sense, the wrong question to ask. Because no matter what bank accounts he has or what property he has, it, at the end of the day, Putin doesn't isn't rich because he has bank accounts or property. He's rich because he controls a country. Mm. He can get whatever he wants in the country. But he may not have power forever, right? Well, that's a, a big question right now in Russia. Yeah. So Putin just started what ought to be his final sixth-year term as president mm. uh, of Russia. But of course, constitutions can be changed, and no one knows right now what his plan is for 2024 when his current term expires. But you know, as, as you note, it's, it's dangerous for a dictator to retire. And there are not a lot of great examples of dictators voluntarily doing so. I mean, is, is, there, an, is there an irony here? Because he was also somebody who you mentioned uh, disliked. Uh, I mean, he says, if you did not miss the, uh, communist uh, Russia, you, you did, do not have a heart. But if, you, um, but if you want it back, you don't have a brain. It's something, mm-hmm. something to that effect. And he criticized uh, the Soviet Union um, because uh, it would it, it economically restrained uh, the country. But yet that is precisely what he's doing now. Uh, do you think he'll have the same fate? Is it is it does, does that does, is there an analogy there? I think the best analogy from a historical perspective to understand Putin today is Brezhnev. Leonid Brezhnev, uh, mm-hmm. um, one of the final leaders of the Soviet Union who governed from the late 60s to the mid 19. 80s, Brezhnev came to power at the height of the Soviet Union's influence in the world stage and then watched over a steady decline that was driven at first by domestic factors, economic decline, stagnation at home. And certainly that's what we've seen over the past decade of Putinism, economic decline and stagnation in a political sense and a social sense at home as well. And it's very difficult to see over the next three or five years any sort of positive change mm-hmm. in that story. I mean, it's funny because he seems to be self-aware about what uh, was hurting uh, the Soviet economy, and while by doing it now, it makes you wonder: Is he uh, blinded by uh, you know seeking um, self uh, you know power for himself? I mean, what what is it? What what is driving this guy? Well, I, I don't actually think that Putin correctly diagnoses what went wrong in the Soviet Union. I think he he gets the story of the final couple of years right, and the, the reason that the Soviet Union finally collapsed was that there was a financial crisis um, in the late 1980s and early 1990s, up to 1991. But the reason that Soviet power in aggregate declined was not only because of that final period, but because the 20 years before that were a period of economic stagnation. And Putin, I don't think, hasn't accurately diagnosed that yet. And so as a result, he doesn't seem to be very worried about the fact that Russia is growing at a slower rate than every other country in Central and Eastern Europe mm-hmm. this year. It's growing slower than most countries in Europe, far slower than the United States. No one is very worried about that in in Russia. And those aren't my own projections. Those are the projections produced by the Russian government. So they know they're growing more slowly than everyone else, but no one seems very concerned. What's Putin doing right today? Uh, because it seems like many of the issues, uh, many of the things that he got right earlier have led to these other problems and stuff now uh, in terms of, uh, you know, less education, uh, investment in education, less investment in healthcare. Of course, um, bolstering crony uh, capitalism. But what is he getting right now? What the Russian government still gets right, and it's gotten this right consistently over the past 20 years, is making sure that the macroeconomic picture is stable. So the Russian government budget is basically balanced. The Russian government has very low debt, both domestically and internationally. When you compare Russia to most other emerging markets, both those that are dependent on oil and those that are not, uh, Russia's fiscal picture looks very good. Its inflation level is around 2%, a very low level. So from the macroeconomic side, Russia's still doing a pretty good job. Mm -hmm. Where it's doing a bad job and potentially even a worse job over time is on 
the microeconomic side, so business regulation, for example. Um, if you're a business that wants to get a permit to open up a new factory, it's often the case in many regions you need to bribe the local fire inspector and the food inspector and all sorts of different mm -hmm. officials to get your factory opened. And there's been maybe a little bit of progress in certain areas on the microeconomic regulatory side, but not much. And so mm -hmm. as a result, Russian business people know that it's better off to take their money abroad where they can invest in a secure, uh, stable location rather than investing in Russia, where the returns can be high, but the risks are also extraordinarily high. How do you change that kind of a culture? I mean, of course, this culture did precede Putin, though he doesn't seem to have done anything to affect it in a positive way. But how do you, how does one or can one make that? Does that just have to happen over a long period of time? Well, you know, it's, the question of how to reduce corruption is not an easy one to answer. Um, there certainly are a lot of instances where countries were corrupt and remained corrupt. Um, but there are also some cases where there was positive change. So one post-Soviet example is in Georgia. Uh, in the 2000s, the Georgians virtually eliminated corruption in their police force via very aggressive measures to actually fight corruption. Um, what's definitely clear is that you need support from the top and you need uh, some sort of mechanism by which the population can express complaints about corruption to the government. And in Russia, neither of those are there. The Putin himself is personally complicit in the corruption of his cronies, and the population has no mechanism for complaining because they're not consulted about politics. Why should um, Americans care about Putin's economic model? What is it about that that should be meaningful uh, to them apart from, I mean, relative to the other things he does, like you know, election interference, invasion of other countries, why should somebody care about this? Well, when Americans talk about what goes wrong in Russia's economy, there's often an implicit conclusion that's drawn, which is that it can't last very long, that they're so corrupt, so dependent on oil, can they really sustain what they're doing in the world stage? And I think the answer, which is unfortunate from an American perspective, is yes that because they've done a good job on the macroeconomic stability side, they have the money they need to wage war in Ukraine and wage war in Syria um, and survive Western sanctions without having to change their policies. So that's not a good thing from our perspective, but if we want to realistically assess what Russia is capable of, we need to realize that the, the corruption aside and the oil curse aside, Russia's got the money it needs to execute its foreign policy and Putin's not going to lose power in the short term just because wages have stagnated for yet another year. And is that just a fact that we have to recognize or is there something that we can do about that? Well, I, th I think it's a fact we have to recognize and then shape our policies accordingly. So if you were someone that we're hoping that sanctions are going to impose extreme pressure on Russia. Well, that hasn't happened yet. So maybe you conclude you want stronger sanctions, or maybe you conclude sanctions don't work, but you shouldn't conclude that light sanctions will impose vast economic costs on Russia and that Russia's already on the verge of instability. That's not the case. Uh, is Russia totally immune from foreign pressure, or are there levers that people can use, uh, United States or Western Europe could use? Well, it's certainly not totally immune, and I think Russia has responded to certain levels, uh, levers, both punishments and also uh, carrots to incentivize it to better behavior. Um, but there are certain things in the Russian uh, mindset for which compromise is not really acceptable. Ukraine thus far has been one. The Russians aren't willing to compromise on Ukraine. Um, and more than that, it's Russia's broader status in the world stage. Russians believe uh, that they have been treated like a, a third-rank power on the world stage, and they think they're a first-rank power. Mm -hmm. And so they're willing to incur costs domestically, economically, militarily, to get themselves listened to uh, by the Europeans, by other world powers, but above all, by the United States. It seems to be working. It, it does seem to be working. And what's interesting is that if you look at 
how Russians define their foreign policy aims. Mm -hmm. So, for example, uh, stopping the expansion of European institutions spreading into the post-Soviet space. Russia is actually failing in that front. Mm -hmm. um, but if you look at how Russians are perceived by the world, are they powerful or not powerful? The world is accurately perceiving Russia as a state with growing influence, and that makes Russians feel proud. Russians are pleased by that, even if, or perhaps even especially if, other people think that they're bad in the process. Nonetheless, most Russians, for better or for worse, are pleased by that outcome. Now, Chris, now you know this is snack break, and we like to uh, host our guests' favorite snack. Uh, and I was extremely, extremely pleased to learn that yours is chocolate ice cream because uh, I love that. Uh, <laughs> and um, there's a place that's pretty close by called Lizzie's that you frequent, as I understand it. Um, uh, please, thank you so much, Eric. <coughs> little unicorn uh, freezer pack here. That's which, very good. Um, yeah, we've got two. So we, I, now, I know that chocolate ice cream is your favorite, but we I ended up, I like to have some variety. So we've got uh, uh, Mint Oreo as well. Oh wow! So what is it about what is it about ice cream that you're so psyched about? Well, I think the thing about ice cream is that a on a hot day like today, yeah. you not only get the dessert, you get the the cooling of it, but b you can eat lots of ice cream. Just generally speaking. Just generally. That's like that's just uh, something that people should do. That uh, encouraged, um, <laughs> strongly encouraged. How do you feel about cone? Are you a cone guy? Are you a? I'm not a cone guy. Oh, so it we're... gets in the way of the ice cream. <laughs> <laughs> See, I think waffle cones, but waffles are so delicious, aren't they? Waffle cones are pretty good. Yeah, but you're and you know, are you are you a purist? Are you not into sprinkles or? Uh, or I'm a purist. Yeah, I'm I'm there for the ice cream. <laughs> that's great. Um, well, here you go. All right. So oh, now I. Chocolate is something that I always get too whenever I go somewhere, and I confess that I I worry that I come off as boring because chocolate is, you know, well it everyone does it. Uh, at the same time, I think well, you know, you know that somebody's gonna just flat out nail chocolate. Everybody does it. It's like kind of it's like chicken parm. You know, there's nobody who's gonna mess up a chicken parm. That's right. And I have yet to come across chocolate ice cream that has not worked out extremely well for me. Well, everyone goes for it because it's probably the best. Is that right? That would be my argument. Yeah? And this actually fits our theme today because Russians are a, a people who consume ice cream in great quantities, both in the summer and in the winter. Sorry, what? So Russians they, eat ice cream even in the winter. They eat in the winter? It's so cold in Siberia. What, what, are, they doing, uh, what are they doing eating ice cream when it's cold outside? Well, that doesn't deter them. Uh, Wow. They like it anyway. So um, it's, it's not rare to find someone in the middle of January outside walking down the street eating an ice cream cone. Really? Ice cream cone? So they're like having it out. They're not like going, they're walking around with it. That's right, on the um, streets. And what, what is it about ice cream in Russia? You know, I don't know what the, the backstory is as to why they like it so much. They've got pretty good dairy products overall. That's probably part of it. Um, but certainly it's become one of the most popular desserts. Do they have different flavors? They do. Um, they, they have Caviar? A, Vodka. <laughs> I haven't seen any caviar flavored, but I, I wouldn't be surprised if that exists. Mm -hmm. But they have a, a different type of vanilla called plum beer. Um, plum beer? Plum beer, yeah. Okay. It, 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 it's, it's, a, it's white in color, and it's, it's vanilla-based, but tastes uh, different than American vanilla tastes like. I got a question for you. When you're in, you know, I guess, when you, and you've traveled, you traveled to Russia a bunch, you've done a lot of research there. When you're there, how do you get information and data because some of the information and data about like things like looting the government and the more nefarious activities of oligarchs and, and the Russian government itself, you would think that they're trying to keep that on the DL. How do you, how do you find that stuff? Well, they certainly are trying to keep that 
um, wrapped up, but there are a number of ways you can get information about it. Um, you know, the, the best way is actually by following the Russian media. Really? Um, Isn't the, that state controlled though? Well, the TV channels are state controlled and most of the newspapers mm -hmm. are state controlled or state influenced, but there are a number of newspapers and a number of very high quality online outlets that do excellent reporting. Really? Um, and because the different oligarchic groups um, are in conflict with one another, they often leak information oh. about uh, various dealings. And because a lot of their property is registered in the West, in London or in, in France and Switzerland, um, when they sue each other, they often sue each other, for example, in British courts. Oh, interesting. And so all of that's public as well. So well, they all hold like British real estate and British banks, right? And even British uh, residency in yeah, many yeah, cases. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Wow, so that's what you have to follow. I mean, is it also reported then in the British press, I would assume, or? It is, yes, but it's actually often the, the Russian reporters for these independent outlets that are doing the best work mm -hmm. in terms of uh, ascertaining who owns what and how do they get control of it. Now, how come you don't see that in China? Well, I'm, I'm less of an expert in, in Chinese media, but I, I think just the openness of the Russian mm. uh, media space, because there's not a, a great wall, yeah. Chinese style, that's censoring the internet, yeah. and there, there is still a elite news media that is reasonably high quality. Yeah. Uh, some of that information does make it out. Now, does this bother regular Russians like do? Because if they seem to be supportive of Putin, generally speaking, um, though sometimes I wonder about those uh, opinion polls. I, I, are those credible um, of the Russian people, of ordinary Russians? Well, the, the, you're talking about the polls that mm -hmm. show that 80% of Russians support the president? Not to mention election returns and things. I mean, there's all these accusations mm -hmm. and allegations of rigged elections and mm -hmm. things like that. So how do you really take that stuff seriously? Well, on, on the elections, we, we certainly know that there are certain provinces where the election data is definitely rigged. So, for example, mm -hmm. in Chechnya, mm -hmm. it's often the case that Putin wins 99% of the vote on 99% yeah. turnout, right? So that's uh, that's not very credible. Yeah. Um, but in places like Moscow and St. Petersburg and in many provinces, there's actually reasonably good apparatuses for monitoring where civil society groups will be in polling stations. And so there we have more confidence that... Uh, the election results, the actual counting of votes is, is more credible, not perfect, and it varies mm -hmm. based on which election you're looking at. Um, now, of course, the context in which elections are happening is, right. is not credible. There's mm -hmm. the media is entirely on the side of the president. Opposition candidates aren't allowed to run. Um, so that's where the real problems are in the electoral system. So before you even get to that point. Exactly. In the first place. Yeah. So well, I guess my question was, do, do, people, do people not like the oligarchs? Um, and how do they separate them from Putin? I don't quite understand that. Well, this has been one of Putin's great successes. The political strategist yeah. has been to convince people that, for whatever reason, he is separate from the oligarchs, when in fact today, um, much more so even than the 1990s, the richest people in Russia are often his friends. Um, yeah. So, for example, his judo buddies are billionaires. Really? People he was judo sparring partners with in the 1990s. Not because they're so good at judo, I assume. <laughs> it's their business acumen, is what <laughs> they say. Um, but no, it's because they have contracts to sell, for example, pipeline equipment to Gazprom. Yeah. And so when Gazprom buys pipeline equipment from one of Putin's judo buddies, they don't pay a market price. And this is just a media, this is just a, a successful media strategy? I mean, what is it? Or um, I, think the, I think there are two things. One is that the unless you follow opposition or independent media, which only a couple of percentage points of the Russian population yeah. follows, you don't really hear about this on a daily basis. So. In theory, you know that there's corruption in Russia, but in reality, you're not getting the day-to-day -day updates as to how Putin's various friends are getting rich. Mm -hmm. So you know what happens, but you don't hear about it. Uh, but the second thing is there's a lot of Russians who believe that Russia's always been corrupt, mm. it inevitably will be corrupt, the opposition's also corrupt, and so... The fatalism. Putin might be corrupt, but he's no less corrupt than anyone else. And it's working well right now, so why rock the boat? Oh, well, thank you so much for joining us today, Chris. It's really exciting. And 
It's a really interesting book. Um, thank you so much again. Thank you. All right. This episode of Snack Break was produced with the help of the Media Production Center, Hauser Studio, Tara Cavanaugh, and Harris Passeltiner. Introduction music was composed by Evan Fennessy. To learn more about the show or watch episodes rather than listen to them, find us on YouTube or visit our website at snackbreakshow.com.